this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. I'm a journalism professor at New York University, and I'm the former Middle East Bureau Chief at Newsday. Let's start with 2003. I think let's yeah. let's start with the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the consequences of that invasion, mm-hmm. both intended and unintended consequences. This was an event that reshaped the region, um, and it reshaped the region not in the ways that the, the Bush administration had hoped it would. Right. Um, you know, as as you remember, as many of us remember from being in the region and um, being around in that moment, there was this um, this hope. There was this um, kind of very rosy view that the Bush administration had that mm. this this would uh, begin this cascade of uh, democratic movements and. Uh, cascade of perhaps uprisings and elections and um, this change throughout the region that it would somehow they, uh, the Bush administration would be able to show the Arabs the way and it would be able to show uh, how democracy can thrive and um, and and you know I mean this this was obviously not how things turned out but there were true believers in in the Bush administration who um, who hoped that they could reshape the the region by force and also by example of of what would happen in Iraq. And at at different moments, they they were they were convinced that it would happen. At um, different moments, they thought Iraq would become this model. Um, and and then of course, what ended up happening is that Iraq became the model of what what. Uh, countries in the region and societies in the region did not want to be. They they didn't want to be um, the victims of a, a civil war, a sectarian war, um, a war that involved the many neighbors, a regional and global war, and all of that taking place at the same time. Um, and and the the people who suffered the greatest un, under this uh, scenario were were the Iraqis, of course, as yeah. often happens, um, the victims of foreign intervention and foreign in, foreign invasions. Now, in many ways, at the same time, and early on, and I, I was in Iraq in 2003 during during the invasion. I was in, in northern Iraq in Kurdistan and sort of made my way south uh, to Baghdad and um, and other cities as as the Americans went in. Early on, in, in those earliest months, there was uh, there was a lot of hope. Iraqis had a lot of hope. Iraqis thought that the U.S. had almost magical powers mm. Um, mm. because here was this power that was able to finally get rid of Saddam Hussein, um, this absolute tyrant, one who many Iraqis had only known him and his rule and his very brutal uh, rule. Right. And, and here is this outside power that came in and removed him, and removed him within a matter of weeks. At the same time, they... It, as things began to unravel over the the coming months and and several years, a lot of Iraqis I think couldn't quite understand what was happening. That here is this power that could remove and unseat Saddam so quickly and yes. so efficiently, mm-hmm. and yet couldn't get the power on, couldn't get mm-hmm, the most mm-hmm. basic services. Uh, running couldn't get society in order, and and there were reasons for that. There are multiple reasons for that, um, and and sort of there's there's a long history. Uh, we now have a long history of all the U.S. missteps that led to Iraq. Part of it was the hubris of of thinking that this is that all this kind of change can be imposed from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, also, that these societies needed uh, these examples. Uh, needed um, America to come in and fix them. I mean, a lot of these ideas we now know to be f- discredited mm-hmm. fairly widely, but they were quite popular at the time. And 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 there was this the original sin of the Bush administration going into Iraq under false pretenses, you know, yeah. using weapons of mass destruction as the excuse. Mm-hmm. And offering that excuse to the world, and and that excuse unraveling within months, and then the years to follow. And you saw that unraveling 
while you were there. Mm-hmm. And you're taking me back, I mean, it's it's 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. The optimism is, of, I'm assuming, beyond just being in the north and heading to Baghdad. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that this was throughout the country. If you're able to now, with hindsight, look back at 2003 and s- at least, at least understand the aspirations of Iraqis wanting to get rid of Saddam, do you, in a way, throw that into 2020 and say that now we're trying to do the same thing without external hmm. intervention? Is it almost like a, a genuine local affair as opposed to America sort of coming in and saying, you know, we can get you there? Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And, and I'm glad you brought up this this question of the aspirations and, and trying mm-hmm. to put them in focus. I think it's important for us to put these aspirations in focus, and they were definitely beyond uh, northern Iraq, mm-hmm. beyond mm-hmm. the Kurdish-controlled territories. I mean, you would see this in, in many parts of Iraq, Yes, um, certainly in, in the Shia-majority parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even sense some of it. If there was a lot of fear uh, in that immediate period in uh, mid to late 2003. There was a lot of fear in the Sunni-majority mm-hmm. um, areas, in the Arab-Sunni-majority areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even there, you could see there were some glimmers of, of hope. And... Um, and that moment was squandered, and it, it was squandered for many reasons. We could spend an entire hour talking <laughs> about that and dissecting sure, that. Sure, we sure, we sure. won't do that. But you know, but one of the one of the primary reasons was the American sense that it could impose um, its will on Iraq on Iraq and the Iraqis, and also the um, internal debate and the internal conflict that was going on within the Bush administration mm. between. Uh, the neocons, or those we now know as the neocons, and I guess the more tempered uh, factions, people like Colin Powell and, and others yes. who wanted, who were more interested and had made preparations through the State Department and through other mechanisms toward societal building. Yes, and, yes. And, and, and then others at the Pentagon and under Dick Cheney's office who didn't want to hear any any of that. And that that conflict played out in, in real ways in Washington and then on the ground it played out in, yeah. in incredibly important ways for the Iraqis. That really set this path of, of destroying Iraqi institutions, sort of the, these mm-hmm. early decisions mm-hmm. under Paul Bremer of uh, debathification right. Right. Sort of, oh, and and dissolving the Iraqi army, or yes. the, the, the two early orders that really set this path. And then another factor, uh, which we sometimes forget, is that there was a small but very vocal and powerful group of, of, of Iraqis, who exiles, former exiles, who had come back. Shalabi, uh, Shalabi yeah, and, yes, yeah, and yeah, Yad yeah, and yes, others. Yes. But Shalabi sort of is the, mm-hmm. is the forefront of that. We, we often think of him, but he wasn't the only one. And uh, you know he was one of the ones pushing for those two orders of debathification mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, dissolving the Iraqi uh, military um, and other orders to, to kind of reshape Iraq in, in the ways that he and mm-hmm. other exiles wanted. And that that was always that was really interesting to see. And it was interesting to see in conversations with Iraqis at, at the time in 2003 and 2004. I, I clearly remember you know a lot of Iraqis being suspicious of of the exiles yeah. and. And the homegrown leaders that emerged and were trying to emerge in mm, that era mm, mm. Uh, and the way they felt they were being excluded by the Americans and by the other, by the kind of burgeoning Iraqi institutions, the way they were excluded because they didn't have those international contacts. They didn't have the previous yes. history. And a lot of them couldn't point to much of history because they were living under Saddam and they were repressed. And, and so this schism emerged between those two, the, the Iraqis who came in from outside, the exiles, and they had a lot of power because they were partly being positioned in power by the Americans and the homegrown leaders who had lived and, and mm. suffered under Saddam. And that's where you had someone like Muqtada Sadr emerged, yes, a yes. leader who was homegrown, uh, who never left. He never sort of left to live in this comfortable exile. We began to see his, some of his own competition with other Shia leaders and Shia yes. clerics, ones who had left to, uh, whether to live in um, Iran or to live in London or sort of in other places. And, yeah. um, and he began to gather a lot of support because he had this sense of legitimacy of being the son uh, yes. of, of a very important cleric. Um, and also having this sense of legitimacy because he didn't leave. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so to bring us back a little bit toward today, you know, in some ways I think we are seeing this, the, the Herak, the uprisings that we're seeing yes. in, um, 
in Iraq and Lebanon, uh, in, in Iran to an extent, but, but maybe I'll, I'll focus in a bit on Iraq and Lebanon here, against these very rotten institutions mm. that, um, that have been in place for a long time, you know, in Iraq, certainly since 2003, since yes. that moment of the U.S. invasion, and in Lebanon, you know, for, for many decades, right. maybe going back. But is that the fundamental change here, that, that what you saw 17 years ago and the aftermath was within the confines of an external occupation and then, you know, the, the consequences of invasion. But the at the end of the day, there was a local component challenging the order. And 2020 and 2019, that you have a similar dynamic without that external, uh, without a the consequence of external invasion and occupation, but still local aspirations against the current order. Is there, a, is there a parallel happening between the two episodes? Or, or is it actually unrelated that these are events that are detached? I don't think they're detached. They, they are related mm. because okay. that, the history, that history carries us to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the history itself is certainly in Iraq where Iraqis lived this history and, and lived in the sectarian order that emerged mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. the U.S. invasion. You know, that was not, it was not the Americans' fault alone for, for yeah. that order. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a lot of Iraqi politicians and parties that emerged post-2003 mm-hmm. invested, were, became invested in that order, and they, they've benefited greatly from it, yeah. just like political yeah. parties in, in Lebanon have benefited greatly from the sectarian system that, that they claim to abhor. Mm-hmm. So the foreign um, role is, is interesting, and it's something I'm sort of constantly thinking about, and, and I think others are, are thinking about as well, and that it's not, you know, we now have this, what, what by all accounts is an indigenous movement mm-hmm. that is uh, fighting to upend this, this terrible sectarian system, a system of mahassasa very much like the Lebanese model. Yes. We do have this indigenous sort of self-propelling movement, but I, I say let's step back a little bit because mm-hmm. there's also the U.S. and Iran and, 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 yeah. and other powers as well, but the U.S. and yes. Iran are sort yes. of looming largest. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting to see slogans that have come out from mm-hmm. Iraq uh, rejecting both U.S. Yeah. In- interference, U.S. In- in- intervention, and also Iranian de- interference right. and intervention. Right. Um, and I think that's been one of the most remarkable things to happen in Iraq, mm-hmm. um, as it's been remarkable in a, in a different way in Lebanon as well. Yeah, 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 exactly, and, right. and which, which I think also includes, we can interpret it to um, include a rejection of foreign interference and foreign intervention okay. uh, in its broadest sense. I right, think. right. Um, and, but in, in Iraq, you, and then you have, um, we, we've had the events of the past month and a half uh, since January 2nd, overnight January 2nd, January 3rd, when uh, President Trump decided to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, yes. yeah. uh, the head of the Revolutionary Guards, the Quds Force, of the Revolutionary Guards, and and that set things uh, that that set really set things back for Iraqis and for their protest movement, and it also showed the U.S. doesn't doesn't really ultimately doesn't really care um, mm. about the health of that movement, no matter what they might say publicly, mm. uh, because they've pushed a lot of the Shia factions t- toward Iran. That's that's that seems I think that's what's been happening in the last few weeks. I mean, a lot of those factions were already. Um, allied and supported with Iran, but there's a bit of closing of ranks around Iran and mm, uh, mm. around the sense that you know, we don't want to deal with these protests anymore. We've seen, for various reasons, we've seen Muqtada Sadr um, reject. I mean, he, he's moved, he's he's prone to changing sides and playing games. Mm. He's kind of, he's a little bit like the Walid Jumblat of, of Iraq. He's, in, in, in the ways he, um, he switches sides and, uh, you know, he doesn't quite do it as uh, theatrically. Right. You have, in a way, explained two decades within one sort of story, which is that there is a link here for for the local populations to move on from their past. Mm. And it's a very thin sort of way of describing it, but it does link Lebanon to Iraq and potentially Iran as well. But you said something about Qasem Soleimani, and I want to get your opinion on the consequences of that decision, which is where you started... You kind of explained that th- this would be a, a step back in aspirations to upend the U.S.-Iranian order in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Can we get a little deeper into that? How would that decision actually derail 
population wanting change. Aside from what you described, which is politician or several politicians reposturing or sort of making making short-term decisions as a consequence. But in terms of the aspirations, how does that decision actually negatively impact a population mm-hmm. that still wants to get rid of both American and Iranian influence? Um, sure. I think one um, short to medium-term impact has been that it's now thrown into question the entire U.S. military presence in Iraq, mm, which was already mm, mm, being challenged, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and it was one of Soleimani's goals to eliminate that that American presence. Uh, we have something like five thousand or fifty two hundred mm-hmm. U.S. troops in in several Iraqi, mostly in several Iraqi uh, military bases, and their mission is is largely to conduct this counter ISIS campaign to continue right. working yes. with the Iraqi military to. Uh, to fight pockets of ISIS uh, around the country, and uh, to help to coordinate the military campaign, and um, and uh, of course, what's happened in the last few months, uh, and even before Soleimani's assassination, is those troops seem to have shifted toward a more anti-Iran or watching Iran role, and and even mm, Trump mm. said this about a year, year and a half ago, in in an interview, he made this offhand comment that. Um, the role of the U.S. troops would now be to watch Iran, as he put it, from Iraqi mm. bases. And so that... Um, so it doesn't that impact the population necessarily. It impacts more the the sort of the geopolitical story at the top. It does, but but it, I, I think that trickles down to uh-huh, the uh-huh. population because um, it it begins to have an impact in, in that, you know, Iraqi leaders were agitated and Iraqis, some Iraqis themselves were agitated by these comments saying, mm-hmm. well, we don't, we don't want your war, you know, we, we don't want your conflict with Iran to spill into right. Iraq. We don't right. want it to be caught in the middle. And there's this long history mm. now, since, certainly since 2003, but we can go back even further, of um, Iraq being caught in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. but, but certainly since 2003, Iraq being caught and being the arena of this conflict between Iran and the U.S. that plays out on Iraqi territory. Right. Uh, I mean, as we saw, it, it's the, the most classic thing is what does Iran do to, uh, in the largely symbolic response it has to Qasem Soleimani's assassination is it attacks Iraqi military bases where there are U.S. troops, right. Right. Uh, fires missiles at Iraq. Yes. Yes. And and just that the, the symbolism of that alone, um, and and obviously it was something calculated not to get let things get out of control, um, yeah. but also but Iran wanted to show it was doing something, and um, and I think there was down the line I think we're going to see other responses. Mm-hmm. I mean this this was just the beginning. Um, so in a way, it adds a violent component that wouldn't be there as a result of that of that decision. But there's an ex- there's an extra problem. That was that was perhaps not part of the uh, population slogans and chants. That it kind of throws that into mm-hmm. the geopolitical story. It does, yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and I think it undermines um, the popular movement, the popular uprising. It undermines it um, in in that it opens the movement up to accusations of being pro-American, which, which, which right, they right. had been accused of before Soleimani was assassinated, and, and they'll continue to be accused of that, the kind of foreign hands mm-hmm. behind, which uh, is sort of a classic charge these days. Um, but can the, same, can the same two things be said once, that the decision may be counterproductive towards the genuine aspirations of the population, and Qasem Soleimani is really part of the problem too. Mm-hmm. So like in other words, the two kind of stand alone, but they're they're both true. And is there is there any sort of hesitation towards leveling the American role and the Iranian role mm-hmm. and saying that they're one and the same? And the, the reason I ask this question is, do you sense that America's role is different than Iran than Iran's role? In all of its ways, in positive and negative, mm. that, or that they're not really just two powers sort of fighting it out. Fighting it out. Yeah. Um, and I know we're getting too, maybe a little deep into Iraq, but I know that it's something you focus on, and it's a very interesting parallel story to what's been happening in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a good way of framing it. And I, and I agree with you. I think both things are true mm-hmm. in terms of Qasem Soleimani. He was a destructive force, certainly in the region. Mm. 
uh, and he he was a destructive force on a lot of levels. He was a hugely destructive force in Syria, in in potentially in within Iran too, in different with, ways. In, yeah, yeah, potentially yeah. within Iran. It's it's not yeah. it's not. I've, I've seen some conflicting things about whether. Mm. I mean, he um, his own branch of the Revolutionary Guards wasn't was able to keep its hands clean for the most part from the internal the uh-huh. most recent internal repression. Okay, uh, because yeah. he sort of focused. He was focused outward. And, right, but, right. You know, there's there's no doubt that he has a lot of blood on his hands. Yes. But at the same time, his removal, and, and, and while some people understandably celebrated his removal, yes. um, there we, we, we saw fairly credible accounts that he did push Iraqi leaders toward um, really uh, severe repression of the protests when they mm. started in mm. October. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they needed it. I mean, they, they, that, that might have been their their natural response anyway, but yeah. um, but he seemed to push for that. And, and so he it looks like he had some hand in, in the repression that killed, you know, many hundreds of Iraqi protesters um, after the protest began in October. But at the same time, removing him doesn't remove Iran as a, as a source of right. that repression. Right, it, it's, right. It removes yeah. him. Yeah. Um, you know, Iran and those... Uh, those leaders in Iran are very good at developing institutions and investing in institutions. So someone else has replaced him now as the commander of the Quds Force. Someone it looks like not quite as charismatic as him and may not be going around the region in the same way mm-hmm. he was, but uh, will be effective nonetheless mm-hmm. because the institutions will persist and will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And now he, he's this martyr figure for the institutions and for uh, its allies around the region. So in some mm. ways, it didn't. I don't think he altered some equation. I mean, it's it. It was a way for Trump to show that he's tough and that yeah. he can make this tough decision, and right. that Bush and Obama didn't make this decision. So, but but he's right. but he's right. able to, and um, and you know here he can regale his uh, his funders and he can regale people who raise money for him with with stories about this about taking the making the tough decision. Mm-hmm. It mm. refocuses all this attention on the American troop presence in yes. Iraq. Yes. 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 Uh, that. Uh, there's pressure now on the incoming government mm-hmm. to continue along because there was this this decision in parliament right a couple two days after Soleimani's assassination to mm. uh, parliament calling on the government to expel U.S. troops and which yeah. hasn't quite happened in this way and the U.S. doesn't want to sh- doesn't want it to appear Trump the Trump administration is very sensitive about appearing to be to have been thrown out of Iraq mm-hmm. um, but in the long term it's I think it's it's become untenable for this large U.S. presence to stay because, one, they're not really fighting ISIS anymore because they're now pretty absorbed in force protection, protecting yes. themselves and, yes. and hunkering down in these bases. So uh-huh. what are they really doing there? Um, and this role that Trump hinted at and other and uh, U.S. officials have hinted at of being something like a listening post on Iran doesn't seem to be that effective mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. out of Iraq. Yeah. And the Iranians and their allies have become so focused, their Iraqi allies, they've become so focused on this goal now of expelling U.S. troops right. that um, that it's going to seem like a very important symbolic victory for them to get as many of those U.S. troops out yes. of Iraq. Um, and it's it's taking attention and, and effort out from under these Iraqi protesters who want to focus on issues, domestic issues, and the corruption and the political system in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, they now have to focus, again, once again, on um, you know saying no to U.S. intervention, no to U.S. meddling, and no to Iranian meddling and, and you, and as well. So it's, it's this way to divert their energy in an unproductive way. I think what we're seeing in Lebanon is a far less violent version of that kind of issue, which is you have decent people in Iraq trying to establish something that that is that is at least decent, and then you have two yeah. protesters compared to potentially thousands in Iraq. Or I mean, yeah, a, nearing a, th- a thousand. I've seen a thousand. Yeah. Thousand. So that's. I mean, just the fact that Lebanon has been very nonviolent compared to at least Lebanese modern history, the geopolitical story may be far less heightened at the moment in Lebanon, that you don't have this sort of American-Iranian sort of battling it out in Beirut. Yes, they're busy doing it in Iraq. But I I was very lucky because I only met you 10 days ago at an LAU event, uh, and you were on a panel 
with someone I recently talked to, Tanesis Kambanis. And it was it was an interesting discussion on, I think it's almost like the mirror of this conversation, which is the Lebanese struggle for change. And we focused in on several topics, and one of them was Hezbollah. And I want to just get your opinion on Iran's capabilities in Lebanon and Hezbollah's particular role in the current situation. There's obvious overlap here. And I'm going to ask you the most sensitive question up front, and then we can sort of, uh, we can sanitize our hands as we talk more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Without the Purell. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see Lebanon or the Lebanese protesters able to move on from the post-war order and in all of its facets, its corruption, its crony capitalism, everything that transpired under Syrian occupation, and of course, the sub-state behavior that we've all sort of adjusted ourselves to for a long period of time. This predates Hezbollah, but Hezbollah is that actor today. That the Lebanese can achieve something better so long as there is a geopolitical component that has a local component within it and that the Lebanese are perhaps stunted as a result of a group that has the capabilities to at least use violence when necessary and to a degree dictate most security matters. It's a big question, mm, yes. and it's a sensitive question, <laughs> and I'm trying to be very careful without sort of, uh, I don't want to sort of overstep in this question without, I'd like to give you as much time to answer this. But I, I say it from a place of potential disagreement with what I heard from the panel. Mm, and okay. it wasn't just, not just you, but with Maya Mcdashi and Tanesis as well. And I asked him the same kind of question, which is, how detrimental is Hezbollah to Lebanon moving out of the post-war order? It is a really big question. We might have to take it in multiple parts <laughs> and multiple follow-ups. And, like, we'll have to go down Zawarib yeah, sort yeah, of things. We'll yes. uh, <laughs> and then five years from now, yes. we'll get nowhere. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> um, so I, th- I would hope that the movement in Lebanon succeeds because, I, I, I mean, I, my own personal feelings of what needs to happen and my affinity for... Uh, the protesters and what they're trying to achieve, and um, and also just this sense of pride. I mean, as as, yes. as a Lebanese yeah. person and um, you know, someone who spent a considerable part of my life in Lebanon and having uh, still having um, family members, immediate family members there, and lots of extended family there. Um, and it was nice. You told me you made it. You made it to the protest. You were able to see. Some yes, in January. Yeah, in January. I was, January, I was yeah. on a visit and uh, yes. visiting Beirut in January. I saw some of um, some parts of the protests, yeah. and um, uh, and so uh, just on that personal level, I, I hope it succeeds. I want it to succeed, and I think it's really the only way that can save the country. I yeah. mean, that's you know, on just on that most basic level, um, and I think you know, anyone basically awake or alive. Uh, should be able to see that, you know, mm-hmm. basically, except for the ruling class, except for yes. large elements of the of the ruling class yes. um, in in Lebanon, um, and and I think that's where the layers of obstacles come in. I, yeah. I would say they're yeah. they're this very I can't quite put my finger on on, on the word of of almost they're not quite cobwebs, but there there's just layers and layers of obstacles that um, are largely internal, but also some external mm-hmm, ones mm-hmm. as well. And that's where um, that's that's where Hezbollah comes in both as an internal factor and an external factor. Right, right. And I think that that's what makes that's what makes this question a little bit difficult to answer um, because it's, it's these domestic layers on top of um, external layers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let me take one one part of it first, which is uh, that I think one one of the main things that needs to happen, and that and it's hard to see how we get from point A to point B on this, is that a lot of this is is going to require 
the ruling elite, the ruling class in Lebanon, the ruling parties to um, reform themselves out of power, essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and that's very difficult. To, it's difficult to see how we get from point A to point yeah. B there. Uh, but that's ultimately what, what needs to happen. They, they need to go along with reforms and compromises that will essentially weaken their hold on power. And, and so far, they've shown very little interest yes. in doing that. Yeah. And Hezbollah is among, uh, not the only party, not the only force, but is among the forces that mm -hmm. have, has shown that. Yes. Um, and, and that's where the rhetoric of Hezbollah over, the, over decades, over the years, as, as the, the kind of movement that's presented itself, um, the kind of um, political movement that has, has said it's against corruption, that it's for reform, mm -hmm. that it's for improving mm -hmm. the lives of Lebanese, um, that's where that r rhetoric meets up against the reality of, of right. it benefiting from the system as, yeah. as it exists now and not wanting to upset it. Um, they probably don't want to upset the system. I'm speculating here for, for a number of reasons. One, it's been working for them and it's yes. kept them um, the dominant military force in the country and, and, and effectively one of the most dominant political forces yes. as well. Yes. Um, it's also, I think they're worried about, they're very worried about the Trump administration and about sanctions and about mm -hmm. being in the Trump administration's crosshairs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the way that the Trump administration has focused on Iran yes. in the last few years. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, they, they, we've heard a lot of statements and rhetoric from Hezbollah and Hezbollah leaders about um, that they have their own uh, financial system and their own sort of, they're, they're not that reliant on the Lebanese banking system. And, and to an extent, I think that's true, but they are reliant on, on it to some extent. And, and there are mm -hmm. even, if not members, there are supporters, there are people in the Hezbollah orbit who rely on that system. There are... Uh, Lebanese business people in Africa certainly yes, that, that rely yes. on the banking system. Right. In I'm not an expert on this. I kind of know the broad contours, but they um, they rely on the Lebanese banking system in ways uh, that that are going to be very difficult to replicate. Right. And and there's some funding that comes in to Hezbollah, whether yes. directly to the party or um, more tangibly to some of its social service networks that comes in through these business people and through right. these business interests. Right. Um, and so there's a squeeze on that now. So it's going to affect everyone, including Hezbollah. On that geopolitical level of, you know, Hezbollah made a decision in 2011 uh, after the Syrian uprising yes. started. Um, and then into the next, probably 2012, 2013, were the critical years of the Syrian uprising and then yes. into, into the civil war. It made a decision with Iran to support Bashar al-Assad fully and to go all in yeah. to keeping Assad in power. And that decision had pretty important consequences in Lebanon, in the region. Yes. Um, it, it certainly feels, I think, to many Lebanese that Hezbollah didn't consult them on that decision at all. And... Yeah. Um, you know, portrayed it as as uh, this is what needed to be done to stop the jihadists, but the jihadists weren't there at the very beginning in 2011, mm -hmm. 2012 even, um, that that came later and sort of protecting Lebanon, protecting minority communities, protecting Christian communities, Shia communities, other non-Sunni communities in Lebanon, that, that role didn't really emerge until later. Yeah. Um, and I think we should be honest about that, and, and Hezbollah should be more honest about that. Um, so being able, but, but to its own constituency, I think it largely was able to sell that narrative, mm -hmm. um, you know, being the bulwark um, that stopped ISIS. And, and yeah, there, there were moments when ISIS was, was close to taking chunks of Lebanese territory. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that, that's part of the reality as well. And sure. we can, you know, sort of the sequence of events and what, what happened first. Would it have happened if, mm -hmm. if, um, you know, if, if Assad's regime wasn't, wasn't hanging on, um, right. thanks largely to Iranian and, and Hezbollah support and then later Russia? Um, maybe that's a hard, you know, that's hard to see which kind of it's kind of a chicken yeah. or egg question. That decision that turned Hezbollah into this um, enormous force, regional force, not just 
dominant force in Lebanon, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. kind of this tip of the spear for Iran or yes. however we want to characterize it. Uh, you know, that decision has had profound consequences for Lebanon, and it's a decision that Hezbollah and its leadership kind of took on their own. Yes. So they, they didn't involve other communities in Lebanon in it. Um, they didn't go back to the kind of to the consensus model that's existed in Lebanon for a long time, and that has many problems that also landed us in where we uh, landed us at the place we're at now. Um, of political turmoil and the economic collapse, but there are some positives to, to that consensus kind of model, and and it, so but Hezbollah didn't involve uh, other groups in that, and just as just as it didn't involve, um, it didn't rely on the consensus model in May two thousand and eight when it just when right. it showed yes. when in, in May two thousand and eight it went into the streets and. Yes in Beirut and specifically in West Beirut and sort of in mm-hmm. Hariri neighborhoods and, and, and other um, areas where it, sh- it showed within 48 hours uh, that it could take control of the streets and that no one can, um, you know, no one can dispute that right. because it felt threatened at that point. It, it felt, Hezbollah felt that it was, you know, something essential. Its communications network was under threat. And, and so this, you know, this show of forces able to sure. to do and 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 kind of silenced all opposition at that point and also became clear and as we saw later that the Bush administration wasn't going to intervene on yeah. anyone's behalf and uh, you know that 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 chip has had long sailed yes but I mean in trying to translate at least the Lebanese moment into something different and I I mean it in terms of genuine political reform. I mean, I know the economic situation is terrible, and that I mean, that may not improve with or without political reform. I mean, the situation is so bad that I think the crash has yet to come. Actually, mm-hmm. it's the, so we, they at least translating street protests to political reform to whatever you want to call it, an eventual untangling of the intercommunal regime that Lebanon inherited and and turned into something that's unsustainable. Can these aspirations happen so long as the sovereignty question is at stake? Mm-hmm. In other words, does Lebanon need to be a, a state without a military-like group, Hezbollah in particular, or anyone in, in recent history? You can go back earlier. Not just Hezbollah, but a group like Hezbollah that can operate without state uh, control or state, uh, and you said it well, that they didn't even consult, forget the state, they didn't consult anyone Mm -hmm. on their decisions, that can we have a functioning state with a group like Hezbollah? I think those structural reforms, the structural changes in governance, in the ways that the sectarian parties operate, and the ways that um, sectarian communities deal with each other, mm. I think that does need to be dealt with separately from Hezbollah because, mm. and even though it might sound counterintuitive, mm. um, but because that the kind of new form of power sharing um, and governance we hope emerges out of the popular protest movement, yes. I think the, the, the danger is if, if you also, if you're, or if you're first trying to change Hezbollah's role, that that's going to be such an insurmountable roadblock mm-hmm, at this mm-hmm, point, mm-hmm. and it's going to make the Shia community feel threatened yeah, in a way yeah. that um, and targeted, um, mm-hmm. unlike other communities. Um, and even though it, Hezbollah's role is different than the role of every other political uh, political yeah, movement sort yeah. of on on the scene today, um, that that my fear would be that that would become such a stumbling block that it would just uh, paralyze everything mm-hmm. and could take us toward sort of violence and in, in that Hezbollah would sort of see this need to protect its weapons and mm-hmm. protect mm-hmm. the Mokawa to protect the resistance and to protect its role in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the factor that uh, there is the reality that the Lebanese army can't protect Lebanon. I mean, can't protect if, if if there is a confrontation, if there is a conflict with yes. Israel, um, there is the kind of you know the, the, there's just 
it's not this this military isn't is not ready to do that now there are scenarios and um there are ways it can get to that stage and iraq in some ways offers some model in in the ways that um elements of the hash the shabby have been absorbed into the security forces it hasn't it hasn't been perfect at all it's it's still problematic it's still um a work in progress uh but it is some ways in which a kind of a militia movement a popular based militia movement can get absorbed into mm-hmm. um into the into the regular military of of the state um you would so see that models. as a that that's that would i mean just to that in itself is so counter it, that hezbollah would never tolerate that kind of scenario in lebanon and of being absorbed in of being absorbed mm-hmm. in not of course not i mean maybe iraq is a more uh, i would assume and you tell me if i'm wrong that the Iraqi state has those capabilities to maybe pressure a popular movement with weapons to kind of sort of join in. That Lebanon is the sort of flip scenario that uh, Hezbollah is so much stronger that it doesn't have that kind of incentive, doesn't see the need to even think about Mm -hmm. sort of joining in. That On the contrary... Hezbollah would not be Hezbollah if it were to join in. To join in, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think I think that's right. It doesn't it doesn't see that need yeah. uh, right now. Mm. Um, I'm I'm thinking of a kind of a of a totally down the road model of of, right, of right. one possibility um, uh, that that could um, you know could could be on the table under under a very radically different Lebanon. Right, it would, it right. Would, it, would, it would need to be yeah. a, a different political system. It would need to be um, and a time when we've settled, um, you know, a kind of a, a non-confessional, under under a non-confessional sort of state. If we get if we get to that point, and that already seems, you know, that, that seems so far away in, in, yeah. in, in, in so many ways. Um, so to get to Hezbollah, you need to get, you need to deal with the, the 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 order itself first. I do think so. Yes, and and it does. I I, I realize that sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but um, I think that that there's 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 also now such a popular um, demand to to get at those reforms, to get yes, at yes. Um, to get at those institutions that. You know, everyone now agrees. You know, don't don't work. That that the sectarian political order doesn't work. It works mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Uh, some people. It works. It works for the Zohama. Essentially, it works for these for the Zaims, and and it works um, um, for very and, and then kind of people around them and, and yeah. ways that they're able to dispense patronage. Um, it's a very archaic uh, way of dispensing patronage um, that. Um, you know, th- I mean, they still they have those systems in place, and and it's um, and if they're counting on a breakdown in the social order and also an economic collapse, um, the Zama I think will want to deploy the, the systems they have in place because they they can yes, they can kind yes. of coalesce for at least some short to yeah. medium term. They could they could survive and mm-hmm. they could protect their communities um, in ways to. To make them survive as well, but really it doesn't doesn't last over the long term, right. um, and and it can you know, it, it can become violent. It can become drawn out. It can become this battle over yes. resources. Um, so yes, I, I would I would I would say it, it we need the kind of larger scale political um, change and larger scale. Um, Political and economic and social reform, um, and then tackle that that question of Hezbollah and its place okay. in society. And um, now Hezbollah might become a big obstacle in, in doing that. That's that's yeah. And, that's and actually, so far, that's yes, where things seem to yeah. be headed. And tying into that, I sense that there's a a bit of pessimism that mm. this is not going to this moment. Perhaps in Iraq as well. Lebanon is not going to see fundamental change, that the protests may not have what it takes to actually upend the old way of governing. And within that, 
I like how you were able to kind of, you're able to see what might be fundamental to change and at the same time see what could be the biggest stumbling block to getting there. And that both of those things are happening. That if you're going to talk about weapons, you need to change the system. Mm-hmm. But to change the system, you may need to have fewer weapons on the scene, and those weapons could be used to defend the system. So it's almost like we're stuck for the foreseeable future between chance for change and a regime entrenched, preserving itself, Mm -hmm. and at times willing to fight for its own survival. And that doesn't sound too good. Absolutely right. We, We are stuck for the foreseeable future. Um, I'd like to be more optimistic um, than pessimistic. Um, I'd like to be optimistic also because we have witnessed something remarkable since October, since mid-October in in, in Lebanon, throughout Lebanon, Uh, you know, something that we may not have thought possible in our lifetimes. It's true. And um, and we should should always remember that and remember how remarkable it is and and remember... um, how sudden it felt, but mm-hmm. also how overdue it felt. Yes. Um, so on, on the one hand, that you know people were really fed up, and and it was it was clear, and and also we should remember this part that that um, we had this sense, and we were told for a long time, both from inside and outside. Uh, that oh that there's this ali that there's just this this way that the Lebanese are and that they're always they're never going to get past their confessional and sectarian system and they're yeah. knowing, and 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 it was remarkable to see how quickly that fell away that's true um, and and that you know what what seemed that it should take years to get to that point mm-hmm. happened within days I mean obviously it had been going it had been bubbling for years right. and decades. Um, but the the way and and that was remarkable and that's something that we can build on mm-hmm. um, and that should give us hope and it gives me hope in in seeing how um, that unfolded over over several weeks and and also um, seeing that you know up until you know not too long ago it wasn't met the it wasn't met the the revolution wasn't met with a lot of state violence yes now we saw yeah. some moments when. Uh, especially when elements of the revolution and the uprising began to target the banking system, yeah. that that there was more violence, and that's probably to be expected because that that banking um, system and that financial system is so tied in with yeah. the ruling elite in, in Lebanon. Um, it did definitely steer some protests protesters away as mm-hmm. well. It may yeah. have had two effects really, which is escalating and also sort of steering. Yes. Yeah. So diminishing the moment. Mm-hmm. To a degree, t- yeah. Yeah, and and there's and I think one impact of the financial crisis and this constant sense of looming financial collapse mm-hmm. is it makes people um, discouraged. It makes people yeah. worried about just day to day survival in ways that you're sort of torn between uh, this longer term goal of having some impact of seeing seeing your life improve, it, it just becomes hard, you know, it, it just becomes hard to uh, deal with that contradiction on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. right? Of, mm-hmm. of you need, you know, you sort of need a prolonged commitment to being out in the streets yes. to, to upend the political order. But if you're out in the streets all the time, you, you can't do these very selfish things that might seem to you selfish of, right. of just ensuring your own survival and your own ability to weather this coming economic collapse that everyone yes. keeps talking about, yes. um, and so you might withdraw, and 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 especially if especially if you have family to take care of. I mean, all all, all of the life things that um, that then come into your calculation. Yeah, um, and I think that part makes me both optimistic and pessimistic. Pessimistic about the resilience of. Um, the political structure and the groups and the leaders that we've had yeah. since the war and who've shown uh, that they're willing to do almost anything to keep power. I mean, yeah. the, these are leaders who've had years and years of experience 
of uh, playing foreign powers and foreign forces against each other, yes. playing them against their own people, their own population, uh, switching sides, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. getting resources out of them, getting uh, money and help out of them, and um, and then presenting things as if they're just totally out of their hands, that this is all yeah. or part of this big chessboard and, and that there's there's nothing they can do. And and that's, you know, that that's... That's something that makes me incredibly pessimistic. <laughs> I, I suspect it makes you pessimistic as well um, of, of this lack of responsibility. Uh, but one optimistic angle, one optimistic side to the protest has been that people have kind of called this bullshit. I mean, people are yeah. no longer letting yeah. a large segment of people, segments that went out into the streets uh, after, in October yeah. and later, um, have kind of said, you know, enough is enough, and we're not going to put up with this anymore, and we don't, we're not going to play this game. Yeah. Um, and that's a kind of political consciousness that's impressive, and that hopefully we can build on as time continues. I hope both of us live long enough <laughs> to see what we both want, which is just a functioning, decent Lebanon that isn't stuck and retro grading into something that gets worse and worse over time. We're both old enough to have seen the darker years. We know what the Civil War did to Lebanon, and we're seeing something that we both waited for a very long time, which is a just a, a citizenry that wants a different Lebanon, something that's good for all Lebanese, not particular Lebanese. And I think that's such a basic demand, but it's so hard to get there at the same time. And I only got to know you recently. I've been following your, your more recent articles in The Guardian, and I, I'm, I'm going to actually uh, link up a recent New York Times piece, uh, a piece in The Nation, and in January, just after Sleimani's uh, killing, you had a piece in The Guardian as well. Really, thank you for sharing your own perspective and long view, from whether it's reporting on the ground in Iraq and the region, or even being a professor here at NYU, sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>